In our industry, there are few things more beautiful than a perfect pairing. Yelp Guest Manager has officially integrated with Reserve with Google, creating the largest consumer network in the U.S. Leverage Yelp Guest Manager to offer reservations, next-gen waitlist, and take out to 64 million more consumers than OpenTable. To supercharge your restaurant's marketing and operations, visit restaurants.yelp.com today. Comscore Media Metrics, based on Yelp Guest Manager, reserved with Google, and OpenTable monthly average number of visitors in the U.S., 2022. Now here we go. So we can give you that great premium pizza with a hundred pieces of pepperoni, whether you order it tonight in Seattle at a Red Robin restaurant or in Jacksonville, Florida on Jack's Beach at a Donato's traditional restaurant, you're going to get the exact same pizza. It's going to have a hundred pieces of pepperoni on it. It's going to taste fantastic. And that's what we decided a long time ago. Jim Grody made that decision in the seventies and saying, I'm just not going to take toppings off my pizzas to make a profit. I'm going to charge what I need to charge and give a great pizza. And we still stick by that today. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators served up on the house. Are you on track to hit your profitability goals for this year? If you're struggling to hit your numbers, I might be able to help. Here's how I do it. Every year, I offer five complimentary growth sessions to restaurant owners looking to scale. In this call, we'll examine your current situation to see what is and isn't working. We'll identify your growth possibilities by the close of the year. We'll uncover the number one thing holding you and your business back. And we'll develop a growth plan that will get your business results. Go to planwithjosh.com to schedule one of the five complimentary growth sessions. They're going to go quickly. They always do. Pizza is hard. Most of us know we're in a commodity business, but I feel like the pizza industry feels it more than most. So how do you stand out from a crowd? Today, we're chatting with Kevin King of Donato's Pizza. This chain has scaled massively over the years by successfully differentiating itself through culture, community, and an excellent product. In our conversation, Kevin shares what it took to get the franchise model off the ground and their plan to turn a pizza parlor into a financial rocket ship. Naive and inexperienced, but I didn't know it. And that's part of the naivete and the inexperience. And I think that's like most people in their 20s is you feel like you're an adult, but you lack that experience that we get as we go through life. Looking back, I know I wouldn't have described myself that way in 1990, but when I look back at what I knew and what I hadn't yet experienced, those are probably the two best words. On the positive side, what I would say is I've always been really curious and I've always liked to dig in deep and learn. So that is a great way to overcome those two weaknesses. But looking back, no doubt, those two come right to mind. And everybody's like doing the math right now. They're like, oh my God, in 1990, he's curious. He'd like to learn and there's no internet. That's a difficult place. <laughs> That's a difficult place to be. Yeah, I wasn't going to the library to learn either because that's all we had back in 1990. Was, you don't want to go and flip through the card catalog. A lot of people don't even know what that is. But it was learning through 
people and talking and experience and really being a sponge, looking at what's going on around you. And I think that curiosity is a great way to get to root cause or why do things happen the way they do? And you have to ask questions like that. It's like, why did that happen or what can I do? And that curiosity is a huge part of it. Well, and you start out there in the franchising department, which at the time, I believe the franchising department was you. Yes. <laughs> and so, and we had zero franchise stores. Right. And it's a relatively new concept. In 1990, it's not like it is the industrial complex that it is today, where there are all these different roadmaps you could follow. How did you walk into that? Like, how did you figure out what to do? I had worked on the franchise side of the business at Domino's, and that was really all my experience. And the rest was books and a couple seminars, attorneys, and working through that. How do we design a program? And so back in 1990, again, there's no internet. You're not on the web searching for other franchise concepts. You're either writing a letter or calling a phone and getting information so you can see what other people are doing. Trades and magazines were big in the 90s, so there was a lot of that, too. And you could see what other franchise concepts were doing. It was a lot tougher to learn back then, but that was kind of the start, digging in right there and learning it. And I'd say it was a little tougher, but it took the same amount of effort to get started and the same level of curiosity to try to figure out what to do. So anybody can do it today as well. Did mentorship play a role? Yeah, I had some people who I really respected in the industry and people I had worked with in the past that definitely played a role and things I could bounce ideas off of, for sure. And then you spent 13 consecutive years with the company and you saw great success in your role. When you look back on those years, what did you get right? That's funny because I probably spent more time on what I didn't do right than what I did do right. I think what I did do right was continue to be curious, continue to learn, and to grow and mature as a leader, manager, or just a business executive. Those were the things that that I think I did really well. And I would love to go back to, say, 1995 and do what I know now and do it again, because I would do things differently. But even if I did them differently, there's some things that would have worked better then than they did if I got to do it again. But those are the things I look back on that I did really well. I stayed curious, always trying to learn and learn to be a leader. Let's talk about that. So how did your philosophy evolve over time as it relates to people? It was one of the greatest lessons I learned at Donato's and almost right away is Jim Grody, the founder of Donato's, always started with principles. He talks and he tells a story about When he started Donato's in the early 60s, it was a dog-eat-dog world. That's what everybody told him. You have to beat them or they're going to beat you. And you're always worried about killing the competition. And to Jim, he said back then and still says today, there has to be more to this. There has to be something that is a higher calling than beating the competition. We ought to be able to talk about how we grow our business successfully. So values and principles from a very early stage here at Donato's and throughout it are the key things. And as I think about both my leadership and where I've seen people succeed and fail, it always comes back to, do they have those core principles and did they stick to them and follow them? And most of the business failures that I've seen in my career are around times when there were gaps there. 
in gaps in integrity or other leadership skills. Integrity is a huge one. If there's not integrity in the business, you don't know who to blame and you don't know where the source of the problem is because everything you say is based on things that aren't true. And so to me, leadership begins and ends with integrity. It begins and ends with hiring and coaching and mentoring great people. And those are some things I would say I learned really early from Jim Grody here at Donato's that you've got to have a set of core principles. Everybody needs to know what they are and the business has to stick to them. Behind me on the wall here is our promise and our mission. And Jim created a mission back in the 70s when business didn't have missions. He did a great job bringing it to life and passing it on to his daughter and to the other leaders at Donato's as we've gone through the years. And as I went on to other businesses, businesses that lacked clear mission and vision and people who did not know what they were, those are the times where you saw failures and gaps. Let's talk about that. You come from a generation where you start a job. I mean, I do too. So you start a job and then you die there eventually, or you retire one or the other. And you look at the life cycle of a career and you say, man, you spent 13 years at the same place and then left. You went to JP Morgan Chase. You went to Papa Murphy's. What did you learn from those experiences? Like when you look back on your path, what purposes did those experiences serve in your life and your career? Yeah, and I wouldn't trade any of them really because every single one of those experiences added great value to who I am and what I do. And a lot of it is being exposed to companies with different missions and vision and values and leaders with different mission, vision and values and trying to figure out what was core to me and what I wanted to do as a leader. So all of that was super important. And also circumstance and events and things that happened in each of those organizations was great for me. When I went to Chase, I learned a ton. I probably learned more in the two years concentrated there than anywhere I was because it was my only time outside the restaurant industry. And you go and you're like, well, what translated from banking to restaurants more than you thought, because I was on the retail branch development side and where do branches go? And I will say the number one thing I took away from there was they had some smart people. But I also really learned quickly that that was an organization that was so huge and so big, it's hard to make an impact. And that's what was part of why I left and went to Papa Murphy's is because there was an organization where I could go and I could make an impact as a senior leader in that organization and do it right away. But I would tell you, I learned something in every role and every job I had, and I wouldn't trade any of them because they have put together what is me today, what is my style, what's important to me, what my mission, vision, and values are. And I think it's been invaluable. And smaller organizations are more nimble and quick. You realize you don't have all the resources that big organizations have, and you got to figure out how to get stuff done without it. You go to a company like Chase, they have unlimited resources. And sometimes that's great, and sometimes it's not because people aren't nimble, they're not quick, and they're not as innovative as they could be. In a small organization, you kind of have to be. And I think another thing I learned at, at both Papa Murphy's and Smoothie King is when you're in a little bit smaller organization, 
you have to invest in talent at certain levels because you probably can't afford talent at every single role in every single position. And that's probably true for most people who run restaurants is, you know, I've got some superstars, I've got some people who are growing and developing, and I've got some people who just get the job done, but they don't give me everything I want. And sometimes you have to live with those people and you got to learn how to work with them and get the most out of them, even though they may not be the most talented people on your team. What are those critical roles? When you look at like an independent restaurant, just as an example, uh, and then they grow to two locations and then three, it's probably time to hire on a director of operations. But I mean, what's that going to cost? I'm based in California. What is that? 150, 165 a year? You definitely- I think it, de- I think it depends. <laughs> you know, if you're talking about a district manager or a director of operations at a Smoothie King franchise or a Papa Murphy's, you're not near those numbers. You're probably in the 70, 80 range. You can get somebody who can do that. But what's critical and important, and I think Josh, you'd agree with this first, the most critical role in every single restaurant is the general manager. So whether you have one store or 50 stores, you got to make sure you got good GMs in those roles and those positions, because if you don't, then that guest experience is going to suffer right away. The product and service that the guests get it's going to really hurt you. So most critical role in every restaurant is probably the general manager. And you got to make sure you have good ones and you got to build some bench. No matter what, there is turnover in those roles. You know, as much as we say, hey, you're going to be with me forever, the best general managers generally have aspirations to do something more. And so you have to realize that I'm going to need a pipeline of people that I have. And I think everybody would agree with that. General manager and a pipeline of people And if you're going to grow, when you go from one restaurant to two, it's 100% growth. That's really challenging. And you all of a sudden, you immediately cut your experience and tenure in half. And you think of like these big, huge organizations, let's call it American Airlines or somebody like that. Have they ever been able to operate when their tenure dropped by 50%? And the answer is no. So some people so underestimate how hard it is to grow from one restaurant to two. Because that one restaurant you can control, you can be in charge, and you've developed tenure and experience and history. And now you're going to do one of two things. You're going to take some of the great people from that first restaurant and put them in the second, or you're going to hire all new people in the second restaurant. And I honestly can't tell you I know the best way to do it or not. Because if I want that, if that got that first restaurant humming, pulling a bunch of people out of there may not be the best thing to do. And maybe the best thing to do is to start and hire. But that is the hardest jump for growth that there ever is, is from one restaurant to two. And then from there, it's just a percentage game, right? So from two to three, you know, my tenure only dropped down by 33% and then by 20. And then all of a sudden you get into something that's actually much more manageable and you got other challenges or issues. You get a district manager and things like that. But So many people underestimate the challenge of growing from one restaurant to two. And you just think about how any business we use every day would handle a 50% drop in their tenure on a day. It just goes like that. Kevin King, I was one of those people that underestimated (laughs) how difficult it would be. I coach independent restaurateurs and I say all the time because everybody wants to grow, right? It's like, the most beautiful drug there is. I say all the time, the only thing I ever wanted in the world was to own a restaurant until I owned one. And then the only thing I wanted in the world was to own (laughs) two. two. Yeah. 
Yeah. But if I could go back and do it all over again, it's like my strongest recommendation is I was working full time in my first location, which was a bar in Hollywood. And then I opened a second restaurant. And if I could change everything, all I would do is say, I would have worked to the point where I didn't need to work, where I didn't need to be right. in that other restaurant at all. So you can pull yourself out so that you can yeah, pull over time out entirely. And you have this infrastructure that works, that isn't dependent on you. That way you can give your best effort to the new location, which will be wonky despite your best efforts and will need a lot of yeah. attention. You know, but most of us aren't that patient. No, I'm still not. Opening a restaurant, no matter where and how many you've opened, is a challenge. And you have a whole bunch of new people and then you got to do it well. The beautiful thing is most customers are a little forgiving on the service aspect at the beginning. They're not very forgiving on the product aspect. You better nail that. But they will forgive you if it takes a little longer than it should at the beginning. But you got to nail that product experience right away. So focus on those things. Let's talk about your return home. So after years away and working for several other successful companies, you decide to return to Donato's. How do you envision the future of Donato's relative to where it is currently? What value are you adding through your vision? So the company's vision is to be around the world selling pizza. And my vision for that is maybe a little bit more specific and shorter in term. Because saying I'm, we're going to be around the world selling pizzas, how long is that going to take? Honestly, nobody really knows today. But I know that we can have 500 traditional units in about five or six years. I know we can be a leader in guest satisfaction by measures of, say, Nations Restaurant News or NPD and those organizations. And those are the part of what my vision is for Donato's is raising that all the while we stay true to who we are from a vision and values perspective. And as long as we do that, I believe those are the foundational elements for us to grow. We have a great product. I think it's by far and above better than what you get from the national chains. I mean, we put 100 pieces of pepperoni on a 14-inch pizza. Nobody comes close to that. It's our signature pizza. It's our number one seller. It's what we're known for. And it is awesome. And you just can't get a better pepperoni pizza anywhere. And knowing that, I know that we have a huge opportunity to grow this brand across the country and around the world. I would assume that the average independent is trying to make it from this year to next year and make a little bit more money. But you guys are talking about global expansion in this competitive space. And so 19 years later, you walk in and there are a lot more tools and there's a lot more information and there's a lot more competition. How do you figure out what is an opportunity and what is a distraction at this stage in the game? Challenge. You know, I think the first is that curiosity I talked about at the beginning is you have to be curious enough to ask questions and learn. And certainly that's it. And then you kind of dig in and look at the business and where do you see the real opportunities? And I know one of the first things that I saw when I came back was third party delivery companies is probably the single most disruptive innovations in the restaurant space in my lifetime. That's more than computers. It's more than the cell phone. It's more than anything because pre-DoorDash, pretty much the Chinese and the pizza guys delivered, no one else. So we had that all to ourselves. And now everyone delivers and it's easy and it's fast. 
So we had to figure out how to capitalize and take advantage of that innovation or that disruption. And that is, how do we get into the marketplaces in a profitable way? How do we utilize their drivers when we're struggling for drivers? And what tools and things can we get from those players? And to me, it all started with the restaurant has to be agnostic on where the order comes. And the only way the restaurant will ever be agnostic is if they make the same amount or about the same amount of money, regardless of where the transaction comes. And if I can do that, then I can get people excited about embracing this disruption. And for Donato's, that was the first step is how can we fully integrate with these third-party providers? How can the restaurant truly be agnostic? And so that's integrating into our POS system so that the order just comes in. The restaurant doesn't have to do anything. The markup and the percentage that you pay the third party, how do I make that about the same? And how do I think about this business? And how do I market to it? And that was the first step, integrating it fully. The other big part is delivery drivers. We used to be the only game in town. So me and the other pizza guys and the Chinese place might have one driver, but we'd have 15 or 20. And today that's not possible. One thing I saw right away is the age of our delivery drivers is they're aging. People used to say, wow, this is a great way to either make a living or as a second income for me. And those people today are older. And we have a ton of them who've been with Donato's since I was here before. I mean, they've been 25, 30 years. They've delivered pizzas, sometimes full-time, sometimes just 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week or whatever, but they weren't being replaced by younger. So the younger you were, the more likely you were to be working for DoorDash or Uber. The other thing that was fascinating is we used to talk about peak hours in the pizza category. Well, when we're a digital business, Josh, it's no longer the peak hour, it's the peak minute. Because we used to control how many orders we could get by answering a phone and typing or handwriting an order back in the old days. And there's only so many phone lines and so many, and the guest is sitting on the other end, calling a busy number and calling back, calling back, or being placed on hold. Well, today you get online and those orders just come. And it's a beautiful thing, but it's a scary thing because I could be very slow and two minutes later, I'm at 100% capacity, no ramp. And how am I going to deliver all those pizzas? And so how do we embrace the third-party providers to use their fleet of drivers to offload when we're above our peak capacity? And how we do that and how we manage through that was something also that we had to learn how to do and take advantage of. And I'm telling you, it is the single biggest disruption in the restaurant category in my lifetime. And you'll see it, you probably see it in your own restaurants. Those who fully embrace it are doing a great business with it. And those who are a little fearful aren't, and they're giving it up because somebody else is getting that volume. Marketing to those guests, we used to call it the menu drawer. Most people used to have a menu drawer in their house. And what do you want for dinner tonight? Let's order something in. And they open the drawer and they flip through stuff. Well, today that is an app on their phone. And if you're a Dash Pass member, if you're not in Dash Pass, you're not in the menu drawer and you're not getting the order. So it is a huge disruption to the space and there will be winners and losers because of it. And I wanted to make sure we were going to be a winner because of it. You guys are doing a bunch of innovative stuff kind of in all areas, but you're also doing 
really basic maintenance stuff, which is super interesting. Like you're renovating a ton of your restaurants. You are upgrading existing locations while expanding. What is the logic there and what is the expected ROI? Yeah, Josh, I don't care what kind of restaurant you have. There's a few that probably don't have to upgrade and reinvest and they're tradition-based. There aren't as many of those as we would like, but we're a premium brand. In order to be a premium brand, we have to offer a premium experience and we have to have a premium facility because unless it's a true mom and pop place where you know the owner, people care about what it looks like. And when you charge a premium price, they have a level of expectation about where it is, how clean it is, what does it look like, and does it reinforce that premium image? So nobody likes reinvestment in an existing facility. And you talk to anybody in the restaurant industry, and I'm sure it's their number one gripe because the ROI is so hard to measure. But I know this for sure. You can get stale and you can get old, and it's going to cost way more later than it does to stay current. Pizza Hut, they had 7,000 or so old Red Roof restaurants around the country that they didn't know how to reinvest in. And the business passed them by. They struggled for years. You've seen it probably in high-end restaurants too. If they're not reinvested in, people aren't willing to pay a premium price to go there. And it's a hard decision. It's a gut-checking decision and getting it right. You know, How much do I spend? Where do I get the best return? It's really hard because you're measuring as much about sales you're going to lose than sales you're going to gain. And that makes it so hard. And to me, I equate premium. If you want to be a premium brand, you got to keep your facilities premium. And if you don't, you're going to lose that premium brand image because the guests going to not pay for it anymore. You just use the word premium like a dozen times, which is interesting because pizza by and large is a commodity business, you know, and I would argue that the pizza industry was defined in the last 40 years by who could sell the most for the least for the longest period of time without going out of business. When you decide to niche up, right, when you decide that you're going to hang your hat on this will not be the cheapest pizza you ever bought, but God willing, it will be the best. You are self-selecting out of a massive market and going into a much smaller demo. Talk to me about that decision. Talk to me about doubling down on that decision. For sure. And how you message it in a way that can be received by people that can and can't afford it. Yeah. You know, as the pizza business matured and grew, I think most pizza restaurants started out on the premium side. Very proud of the product they served. It was done in the restaurant and the proprietor, the owner, whoever, you know, he developed that recipe. He evolved the product over time. As chains grew, it became a race for the bottom. What can I do? How? And so as a business and Jim Grody went through this, I've got two choices. I can either charge for it or I could take it off, but I can't do both. And Jim early on decided that there was a market that people were willing to pay for, for quality and abundance. And so we talk about premium and abundance all the time. We think they go hand in hand. Of course, we select premium ingredients, but we top them abundantly. And we believe people will pay for it, especially if we're going to go up against thousands and thousands of pizza restaurants that are out there. What am I going to say? If I'm not going to go premium, then I got to go price. And there's already a lot of people 
that's the most crowded part of the category, but there's a lot of people who want a great pizza and they want it consistently. And that's the other thing Donato's does extremely well is we have a fantastic operating system to deliver on consistency. So we can give you that great premium pizza with a hundred pieces of pepperoni, whether you order it tonight in Seattle at a Red Robin restaurant or in Jacksonville, Florida, on Jack's Beach at a Donato's traditional restaurant, you're going to get the exact same pizza. It's going to have 100 pieces of pepperoni on it. It's going to taste fantastic. And that's what we decided a long time ago. Jim Grody made that decision in the 70s and saying, I'm just not going to take toppings off my pizzas to make a profit. I'm going to charge what I need to charge and give a great pizza. And we still stick by that today. The pizza we serve today is the same as it was in 1963 when he started. That 100 pieces of pepperoni has been around that long. And yes, technology's changed and how the pizza's cooked and how we get dough into the restaurants all change, but the pizza's the same as it was in 1963. Let's go back to growth. Let's talk about the Red Robin partnership and all of the innovative ways that you guys are choosing to grow. Talk to me about, I guess, high level, especially as it relates to brand, your growth strategy, and then also what the Red Robin relationship looks like and how you've leveraged it to grow. For sure. I mean, starting with Red Robin, they approached Donato's about five years ago, wanting to introduce branded pizza into their restaurants, do a test, and Donato's embraced the idea. Again, it was innovation. It hadn't been done, hadn't been done successfully. So it was a gut check time too for the leadership at Donato's when that started. What Donato saw in Red Robin was quality brand selling quality food, not the cheapest and willing to charge what they needed to charge in order to make a profit as well. So they saw that mission and values very much aligned between the cultures. So there was a lot of confidence that we can entrust this brand to make our pizzas and serve them in faraway places every day. And what Red Robin saw was a way to do that, that our operating system really transferred to something that they could execute in their restaurants and that our system enabled a person who made hamburgers yesterday have the ability to make pizza today and do it at a high level every time. So that's what worked great. What Donato's really saw as the opportunity is to accelerate brand awareness across the country, give us nationwide distribution of our products. Because we don't buy anybody's pepperoni. We buy Donato's pepperoni. We've had the same supplier for about 40 years on the pepperoni side. And that's so critical to the success of who we are. Distribution is certainly a challenge. As you know, running high quality restaurants, you got to make sure you got great food to make great food with. And so that's what we saw in the opportunity. It was also a way to leverage these third-party providers. So we could get into a virtual storefront for Donato's and a virtual storefront for Red Robin and offer pizza delivery in Seattle or San Diego through DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, and and all of those providers. So it came at a perfect time. It started before the pandemic, but it was part of it. It gave Red Robin a great opportunity to grow their off-premise business. It gave Donato's a great opportunity to grow its brand awareness and its nationwide distribution. So it's really been a great partnership. Their team at Red Robin does a great job with the Donato's product. We're extremely proud of the pizzas that they make and sell every day. And I think they would say the same thing about the partnership back on our side. I like to save the most difficult question for last. 
Um, uh, I was waiting for that. <laughs> Let me go. You sit generationally in like a really unique space because in your time in this industry, you have seen massive changes, massive changes between a global pandemic, the Me Too movement, the BLM movement, like so much has changed in our industry in just the last 10 to 15 years. And the industry itself is filled with all these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see the industry turn the tables to create a better future for all of us? You know, one of the things that excites me most about, I will say, millennials and Gen Y is they approach life with far more purpose than most of Gen X and baby boomers did. And they care about what the brands they use, what they stand for. And that puts pressure on companies to actually take a position and take a stand. That brings me a lot of joy and it it excites me about the future because companies or restaurants that don't care about their community or don't care about their environment are going to get penalized by millennials and Gen Y. And I love that. And so I think the pressure that that is putting on our industry is going to make us so much better from recycling to how we treat our team members in our restaurants, what we pay, where our food comes from, global warming, you name it. It's going to touch every aspect of how the restaurant is a part of the community they're in. And that really excites me about the future. And I love that it's being pressured by the guest, right? The worst way is if it's legislated, that's the worst way. But businesses doing it because that's what the guest wants. Love that, love that so much. And, you know, I'd say more power to millennials and Gen Y, keep the pressure on businesses because you're going to make real change in this world by making businesses do that. And I probably can't even imagine how good the restaurant's going to be by those generational changes that will happen because of that. And I think it is in all aspects I just talked about. It's how we treat our people. It's how we're inclusive. It's how we treat the environment. It's how we recycle, how we give back. And those things are huge for the future. And and that really excites me. And I think it's going to create a fantastic restaurant industry. The only other thing I would say is, hospitality is still so important in the restaurant business. So I don't think AI is going to change restaurants for that much. We're still going to need great people. We're going to need people who smile and take care of guests. Now, I think it will, AI and technology and robotics and all those things, we're going to be able to focus the human element on the parts that really matter to the guest. And I find that fascinating too. So if a machine can do it better than a human, great. But there's so much that a part of the dining experience that's driven by the human that I really love. So we're going to have people working in our restaurants for a long time. So we've got to figure out how to keep them engaged and excited. And we've got to continue to attract talent. So we can't be the place that people go to because they can't get a job anywhere else. We got to just grab people, show them what a great work experience is like. and hopefully keep great people in the restaurant industry. Because, you know, there's people like you, Josh, that we just need. We need great people every day running restaurants. And I think we'll continue to do that. Our industry suffers from razor thin margins. And the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data driven decisions. The numbers don't lie. And Yelp for restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. 
And with restaurants paired that level of visibility with Guest Manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Kevin King. For more information on Donato's Pizza, visit donato's.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.